invite you to take a copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 146. The Psalter, the book of Psalms, is divided into five uh, books of Psalms, so smaller uh, sort of collections of Psalms that were then compiled into this sort of hymnal, if you will, for uh, the people of Israel. Uh, and, and so this uh, Psalm 146 is in the last uh, of the books of the Psalms. And it, in fact, begins a, a, a series of the five final psalms that are often called the Hallelujah Psalms. And you'll see why uh, from the way that the psalm both begins and ends. And so I'm going to read to you the whole uh, thing here. It's just ten verses long, Psalm 146, and then we'll, uh, we'll consider together what exhortations the Lord has for his people uh, in, this, uh, in this song of worship. It is intended indeed for, for corporate use, for congregational uh, praise. So let me read for us Psalm 146, and then we'll consider it together. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose hope, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Amen. You can probably see why the psalm is called a hallelujah psalm. Indeed, it begins and ends in the Hebrew text with the word hallelujah. Now, that's a word that has come into, just been transliterated into the English language. That has become common knowledge, commonly used, although often uh, sort of minimized uh, in, in the, the, the way that it's used. It could be my football team scored a touchdown, hallelujah, right? We, we hallelujah all kinds of trivial, petty things. The reality of the word hallelujah is that it is an exhortation to the people of God to praise Yahweh. Indeed, it is just literally uh, the second person plural imperative. Like if I were going to command a group of people, go there, do that. It's that of the word praise. So it's praise and then Yah is sort of a contracted version of the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And so literally it is a, a, an exhortation to the gathered people of God to praise Yahweh. That is what it means. And you can see that this psalm is bookended with that, uh, with that exhortation. It begins, praise the Lord. That is, hallelujah. And it concludes in verse 10, the last phrase, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. 
And so he starts with this exhortation to the people of God as they're gathered together to give praise to Yahweh. Again, th- this is the and this is the pattern that the final five books of Psalms uh, all follow. Uh, and so, excuse me, my music stand is collapsing on me, so I got to tighten this down a bit. So the five final books uh, or psalms in the Psalter all conclude in this same way with a book ended by hallelujah at the beginning and at the end of each of these psalms. And so the whole book of psalms, though it's, in, it's covered a wide range of emotions and human experience and situations of crying out to God for, uh, for mercy and deliverance uh, and, and everything sort of in between, it concludes appropriately with these joyful, exuberant exhortations to the people of God to praise Yahweh. So he begins by exhorting the community of faith, right? It's this this public second-person command, praise God. And then it's as though he sort of calls his own soul to engage in the same reality. And so each of the worshipers, as they're gathered together, would, would give the exhortation to each other, praise God, and then turn an eye inward and say to our own soul, praise the Lord, O my soul. Just as I'm calling the people of God together to praise God, I'm, I, I need to call my own soul to praise God. I need to remind myself of Uh, the need to give worship and praise and adoration to God and the reasons that he's worthy of such praise and adoration. And then that is followed by a a sort of a declaration of the intention of the psalmist and thus of the worshiper of God to continue participating in the praise of God no matter what. So I think the first exhortation that we find uh, plainly in this psalm is simply this. Praise God no matter what. Praise God in the community of saints. Praise God in the privacy of your own heart and your own life. And no matter what happens, as long as you live, as long as you have being, praise God. You see that declaration in verse 2. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. The church's worship of God is not contingent upon its circumstances. Worship is to be offered to Yahweh as long as we have our being. Now, it's a commonly known reality that the people of God are not always in happy, easy circumstances. Historically speaking, in our own day, in different parts of our world, in even more intense ways, the people of God have been under pressure. The people of God have been uh, persecuted. And so to be a part of the the worshiping community of God's people is not to be uh, living a, a rosy, easy life. It's to belong to a God who rules and who holds us no matter what comes our way. Worship is to be offered him as long as we have our being. Suffering and injustice, if that should be our experience, should not hinder the Godward focus of the worshiping people of God. Charles Spurgeon on this passage uh, has, has this to say. I found it stirring. I thought I'd share it with you. He says, I shall not live here forever. 
This mortal life will find a finis in death. But while it lasts, I will laud the Lord my God. I cannot tell how long or short my life may be, but every hour of it shall be given to the praises of my God. While I live, I'll love, and while I breathe, I'll bless. It is but for a while, and I will not while that time away in idleness, but consecrate it to that same service which shall occupy eternity. As our life is the gift of God's mercy, it should be used for his glory. Friends, how good it is to praise God. Take time and opportunity in the course of everyday life to actually speak the praise of God to yourself. It could be silent. It could be aloud, but maybe you're the only one in the room. Speak the praise of God. Speak to uh, your, your family members or to your neighbor or to a fellow Christian, but make the giving of praise to God for his glory and his grace a part of your regular practice throughout the day. I think that is the, uh, the, the, the aspiration of the psalmist and then of the gathered and worshiping people of God, that, that the praise of God, the returning of thanks and honor and glory to him for his goodness and his grace and his power and his character, that this would be the regular practice of his people. No matter what we face, we don't merely praise God when everything is going great. In fact, I might argue that when everything is going great, we're perhaps more inclined to forget about God because we think things are going pretty well. I'm taking care of things. I don't really need him. And it's not until the bottom falls out that we sort of remember, oh, okay, maybe, maybe I don't have it as together as I thought. God, would, would you help me? Let's make it a regular practice to give praise to God and to live a life of praise. Hallelujah. Praise God no matter what. The second truth from this psalm that comes very clearly to us in verses three, three and four is this. Trusting in man is useless. Trusting in man is useless. Look what he says in verse three. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Put not your trust in in princes. This would be a representation of certainly governmental power. Those who in this day would have been kings or heir to the throne of the kingdom. So we don't put our trust in in a prince because when he takes the throne, we know then things are going to be great because he's going to take care of us. He says, don't put your trust in princes. And even more broadly than that, in a son of man, that is a human being, any merely human, any mere human being should not, uh, is not worthy of our trust because he says in him, there is no salvation. Human systems and power are sure to fail. Even at their best, they're fleeting. Even if the, the prince that you're trusting in has a good heart and a good plan and he's a wise leader even then he will die. Even if he's a good king, a good president, a good governor, whatever, he's a good leader, he's not going to live forever. 
And as it tells us in verse 4, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. doesn't matter how great his plans were. He had the best health plan I've ever seen. He had the best immigration policy I've ever heard of. It doesn't matter how good the plan is. When he dies, it's over. His plans stop. Somebody else steps in, and it goes a different way. That's the nature of this, right? Don't trust in a prince Don't trust in a son of man. There is no salvation there. The note in my uh, ESB study Bible here says, Governments and armies have their proper place, but their merely human power is not ultimately decisive in the world that God made. Amen. God is king. God is enthroned over this universe. No matter who is the most obvious sort of powerful figure to our perspective, to our limited human view. The most powerful man on earth, he's not in charge. God is king. We need to hear this message, I think, uh, repeatedly that there is no salvation in man because as much as we know it and we believe it, we still tend to lean on other people or institutions or systems, trusting that somehow they're going to come through for us. And they will not stand. They will fail us. You know, if you're swimming in in the deep end of the pool and you start to to run out of energy and you start to bob under the water, when you need a rest, you need to reach for someone else whose feet can touch the bottom, right? You you need to be able to hang on to somebody who's on solid ground and, and solid footing. If you cling to someone else who's treading water just like you are, you both go under, right? It, it does not save you. And in fact, it puts them in danger as well. That's what it's like to trust in princes and to trust in a son of man in whom there's no salvation. Expecting human institutions or ideologies to bring you hope and stability is like expecting a drowning man to be your life raft. You're going to cling to it, you're going to hang on to it, and ultimately you're going to go down. And it's probably going to go down with you at some point. We need to cling to somebody who's got his feet on the ground, who's able to hold us up when we're drowning. And that is the Lord, our God. How might we be tempted to trust in man? Right? If we're exhorted here, not, don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in a son of man. What, what are the, some of the ways that we might, in our day and our actual lives, be uh, inclined to put too much emphasis or too much hope in, uh, in man? There's a few things that come to my mind. I'm sure you could think of some, some different ones. One is money and financial security. Right? We think that if I have enough sort of money stored up or saved up or have a job that pays me enough or, or, or whatever, then maybe I can sort of seclude myself from life's troubles. Right? I can buy myself some ease. The kind of troubles that come to people that don't have much money, I don't want anything of that. So I'm going to make sure I get lots of money and then I'll be safe from life's troubles. We know that's, that's an empty philosophy. We know that uh, that is not a, a, a hopeful outlook. To the extent that we place our trust in money, uh, we're not only going to be disappointed, we're actually revealing that our heart's uh, first love is not the Lord, but it's, it's financial wealth and resources. Jesus had strong words about that in Matthew 6. 
You cannot serve God and money, right? You have to choose which master you're going to serve. I think this is a way that, that people in our uh, time and society can, can often uh, trust in man, which is man-made uh, resources and wealth. We might be tempted to trust in, in say, education and opportunity, right? If, if, I, if I'm educated enough, have the right degree, I've got enough credentials, then I can maybe sort of figure out my own problems, right? I can figure out how to solve things and, and I can just sort of uh, educate my way out of the troubles of life. So I'll, I'll hang on my, uh, my degree. I'll hang on the classes I'm taking at school that'll teach me new skills. I'll, I'll hang on uh, whatever opportunity, uh, even in sort of corporate world or, or work world, that, those, that that education might afford me. And so once again, we're leaning on systems that are sure to fail. Education is not bad. Opportunity is not, not evil. But if that is our hope for living sort of a, a good life or trying to sort of get out of trouble and find salvation, we're going to be disappointed. Maybe the most obvious one, and it's even stated very plainly in this text here, is simply uh, government and, and politics. Right? If, if, the, if people that I trust are in positions of power, then maybe the government can rescue me from my troubles, right? Maybe the government will, will step in and, and fix my problems. And you might remember, I think it was Ronald Reagan who said, you know, the two scariest sentences in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, so we, that's, that's not going to work, right? We get that, like government is not the answer to our problems. But sometimes Christians live as though it is. So, sometimes we can, we can speak and fear and, and act sort of in, in the public sphere as though whatever happens in the White House totally determines how my life is going to go, what my future looks like, and whether I can be happy. And friends, that's just plain and simple, trusting in princes for salvation, when we ought to trust in only the Prince of Peace. We ought to trust only in Christ, our King, for salvation. Listen, the best doctor the biggest paycheck, the right guy in the White House, none of these will provide you lasting hope. None of them can be trusted to carry you through life's thorniest pathways. And all of them, even if they're helpful for a while, will eventually fail and leave you alone. Put not your trust in princes or in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Trusting in man is useless. The third truth from this psalm is the contradicting reality. It's the corollary of that, uh, the, the uselessness of trusting in man. It's simply this in verses 5 through 9. Trusting in God gives true hope. Trusting in God alone brings true hope. And then we're given uh, reasons. We're given this sort of litany of, 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 of things about God and his heart and his character and his acts that, that, that stir up trust, that give us grounds for trusting in him and hoping in him. The first of those is, uh, is his creative power. He made the whole world, right? He says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob 
whose hope is in the Lord his God. Verse 6, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And so you have that threefold division of the universe, the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything that's in them. He made all of that. It makes sense to hope in a God who made everything that exists. He's powerful. He has the resources at his disposal to pour out blessing and help and deliverance. Trusting in God gives true hope because he made the whole world. He has the power to help. Trusting in God gives true hope because he is faithful. Look at the second half of verse 6. It says he keeps faith forever. This means he is a covenant-keeping God. He is true to his word. He never breaks his promise. He never abandons his covenant. When he has invited his people into covenant relationship with him, he will not change. He will make good on what he has promised to do. And so it makes sense to put your trust in a God who keeps his covenant. It makes sense to trust in a God who is faithful, who keeps faith forever. It makes sense to trust in God for our hope and our salvation because he cares for the lowly. That's what I see in verses 7 through 9. It's this long list. Interestingly, the sort of longest portion of this psalm is a list of ways that God is concerned for the lowly. That is concerned for those who are not of noble and high esteem in the world, but those who are often forgotten, those who are often trampled upon, take it advantage of. Look at, look at this list beginning in verse 7. It says, he executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down with cares and despair. The Lord loves the righteous. This is, a, this is a reference to that covenant. The righteous are those who belong to him, are in covenant with him. And under the new covenant in Jesus Christ, those who belong to him thusly are those who have repented of their sins and recognize Jesus Christ as the only Savior and are resting, trusting in his life and death and resurrection for their standing with God and their righteousness before God. That's the righteous. It's not those who are of their own efforts and in their own flesh are righteous because the Bible tells us, in fact, other Psalms tell us there is no one righteous, not even one. So the righteous is not one who's righteous in himself. It's one who is righteous by the declaration of God in his covenant grace. So as we are trusting and leaning on Jesus Christ, his righteousness becomes ours. We're told that in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Lord loves the righteous. That doesn't mean you've got to be good enough to earn God's love. It means if you're in Christ, you're his. You are his righteous ones. He loves you. He loves the righteous. Next part of verse 9, he, uh, he watches over 
the sojourners, those who are sort of out of place, wandering, traveling. He, he watches over them. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. He judges the wicked. It's a little funny to our ear, probably, when you're thinking about this list of ways that God shows kindness to the, the needy and the, the lowly. He, he brings justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry and freedom for the captives and sight for blind. And we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he judges the wicked. And we're like, wait a minute, what? How, how, does, how does that fit in the list? But if you think about what this judgment means, it starts to make a little bit of sense. God's judgment upon the wicked is always a righteous judgment. And in fact, we know from all through the scriptures that the justice of God is inescapable. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Nothing is going to go unnoticed. No act of injustice or unrighteousness or wickedness is going to sort of slide under the radar and 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 escape the judgment of God. No, God's judgment is sure. God's judgment is righteous and it is coming. And when you think about the the lowly in these verses, those who are oppressed and 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 hungry and and are held captive, those who are bowed down, those who are sojourners and in a place where they don't really belong. They are often in those situations because they're victims of injustice. Often the way that that they are treated is unjust treatment. And so there is a a heart cry on the part of the oppressed, Lord, how long, right? How long will this be? How long will you hold back your your hand of, of blessing and providence? And even how long will the the ones who are responsible for my oppression and my captivity, how long will they succeed? Right? That's, we have other Psalms that say that very same thing. How long, why does the, the wicked prosper? Right? How long will the wicked prosper? Well, the answer is not forever. Because God's judgment upon the wicked is coming. And it is a vindication of the righteous as well as the oppressed. It, it's, a, it's a vindication for them. No injustice will go unpunished. And so its victims are assured of eventual justice. That's not always uh, satisfying in the moment of oppression. In the experience of injustice, it's not always satisfying to, to think, well, someday this will all be righted. But that is the heart of faith. That's, in fact, the heart that we see demonstrated by Jesus himself as he went to the cross. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says while he was, uh, they, they were threatening him and insulting him and, and hurting him, it says he, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He uttered no threats, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know what was on the mind of Jesus as he was enduring the greatest injustice and oppression that has ever been experienced by any human being, what was on Jesus' mind is, this too shall be made right. God will judge justly, and this will not go unpunished. God's justice, therefore, is good news for the righteous, and it's good news for the oppressed. Those who are victims of injustice can be confident that God will rise up and plead their cause and defend them. He cares for the lowly. 
It makes sense to trust in a king whose heart is for those who are marginalized, minimized, mistreated, outcast. That's the kind of king that, that you want to follow. That's the kind of king that you want to trust in. And that is the kind of king that Yahweh is and will forever be. The emphasis in this midsection of the psalm, right after the sort of exhortation to praise God forever and the warning about the foolishness and uselessness of trusting in people, this long midsection that points us to uh, the power and the faithfulness and the compassion of our King is a reminder that God's people are often a suffering people. God's people are not always on the, uh, the strength side of the societal or social sort of equation, right? Political situations or whatever. God's people are often the underdogs. God's people are often the forgotten or the mistreated. The downcast, the oppressed, the prisoners that we read about in these verses, these are not just outliers in society. Like God cares about those people over there on the fringes. He does. But these are not just outliers in society, but descriptors of the way the community of faith, the people of God, often feel. The people of God often collectively feel as though we are oppressed, that we're captive, that we're uh, bowed down, that we're sojourners. In fact, we're even called that. The whole letter of 1 Peter is addressed to the elect exiles, right? You don't belong here. Your citizenship is in heaven, and yet here we are, strangers and aliens in this world. This is the experience of the people of God. And so as we come to identify ourselves and our uh, church and our community of, of faith with this list of the lowly, of the bowed down, of the mistreated, we come to find that the heart of God for his people is a heart of compassion and a heart of care. And so the overarching theme of this psalm, short of just praise God, because that's a good thing to do, the overarching theme of this psalm is that while suffering and injustice may be the lot of the people of God, nevertheless, his just reign is a worthy source of confidence and hope. And it's the only worthy source of confidence and hope. Don't trust in human systems and powers for deliverance from your plight. Trust in the righteous judgment and rule of Yahweh. That's the message of these verses. The kingdom of God is a just kingdom, and he is a just and good king. Trust in him. He has the power and the promise-keeping track record and the compassionate heart to lift you from your troubles and to save you for all eternity. And the final exhortation, the final truth from this psalm is fitting right on the heels of that. It's simply this. God's kingdom is forever. God's kingdom never ends. It never ceases. Verse 10, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Zion is the hill upon which the city of Jerusalem rested. And so when the Psalms or the word call to, call to Zion or address Zion, it's speaking to the people of Israel, of course, in that day under the old covenant. But we read that as those who belong to God through Christ. Your God, O church, to all 
generations. When your king is the one worthy of your trust, the unending character of his kingdom is good news indeed. Because it's not a situation where, man, the best guy is on the throne. I really trust his heart. He's got a great track record. He's got really good plans. But I'm not sure how long it's going to last. I'm not sure how long his kingdom will last. I hope he lives a long time and enjoys a long reign. We don't have to wonder that or hope that in this kind of wishful thinking sort of a way with God. His kingdom will never end. The Lord will reign forever to all generations. Praise God. Psalm 29.10 says, The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Exodus 15.18 says, The Lord will reign forever and ever. It's over and over throughout uh, the scriptures that the kingdom of God will never end. And because his kingdom is eternal, the trust that we place in this king will never be put to shame. It's never a misplaced trust when we're trusting in God because his kingdom will not end. Trusting God will always be the right choice. No matter what you face, Trust in God is always the right choice. He will not go back on his word. His sovereign power will never diminish. His heart of compassion toward his people will never change. And praise God, his kingdom will never end. Martin Luther penned the great hymn that sort of come to represent the the, the Protestant Reformation. And it ends with these lines. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Hallelujah. God demonstrated his solidarity with the lowly by sending his son, God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, to dwell in our flesh and bear our sins. God has ensured the everlasting dominion of his just kingdom by bringing back from the dead our Lord Jesus, whose life and death inaugurated his reign as king forever. He's now been bestowed the name that is above every name. God has proven himself worthy of our trust, the one in whom there is salvation, by turning our eyes to a hill outside Jerusalem where the Lamb of God was slain for the sins of his people, so that in our weakness and sin, we might find a sure and lasting hope. Friends, praise the Lord.